Uh, You might know the the proverb, chapter 17, verse 28, or at least something like it. It reads this way, Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent uh, and discerning if they hold their tongues. It's a sneaky bit of wisdom for us on a Sunday afternoon, isn't it? You you may have absolutely nothing of, of any substance to say at all, but by not saying anything, you can at least appear to be wise. And we picture the person just quietly sitting there, maybe nodding, uh, maybe doing the active listening that our counsellors nowadays are so good at doing. Uh, Though at some point you do have to speak, don't you? Uh, At least my wife, Jen, says occasionally, Jono, you're not saying anything. Of course, it's just an observational statement, but behind that statement is the question, Please say something, not, not anything, but something. And it is so hard to know what to say at times, isn't it? Uh, this afternoon, we're having a, a brief look at these friends, these so-called friends of, of Job. Uh, in, in a book uh, that's 42 chapters long, we have from chapter 4 through to chapter 27, these three cycles of speeches. Uh, It goes like this, one of the friends speaks and then Job, the second friend speaks and then Job, and the third friend speaks and then Job, cycle one. Cycle two, that repeats. Cycle three, it's similar, except the friends sort of just taper off, if you like. The second friend's speech is, is much shorter, and the third friend doesn't speak at all. There's a younger friend as well who speaks later in the book, but separate from the others, and that's from chapter 32. We're focusing on just the three, and specifically that bloke Bildad, who speaks in chapter 8. Amy just read that for us. He speaks again in chapter 18, and then a really short one in chapter 25. But we'll, we'll just look at chapter 8, hey? And as readers, if, if you read Job, there's chapters and chapters of this, this poetic Uh, these poetic speeches, and it can be a little disorientating. Uh, So I reckon, and you read books this way, you look at the beginning and the end. So you flip to the end, and you read in chapter 42, verse 7, where it says this, The Lord says to Eliphaz, I'm angry with you and your two friends, as you have not spoken truth about me. I'm angry with the three, says the Lord, because you have not spoken truth about me. They may say some things that are right, almost right, but overall their speech shows them to be foolish. And you recall, if you were here last week or you know this book that is Job, this bloke Job is having a rough trot uh, on a massive scale. A real man who really suffered from being the greatest among all of the people in the East to losing, well, pretty much everything. Uh, And as readers, we're given the backstory. Uh, Our writer wants us to know that this suffering, uh, it's not because of Job's sin. And so we're told three times in chapter 1 and and chapter 2 that Job is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and and shuns evil. That's not to say that Job's perfect, 
but that he's a genuine believer, that he's innocent in this suffering, that he is one with integrity. He's the same on the outside as he, as he is on the inside. But Job's integrity claims Satan. His love and service of the Lord, it's just based on the Lord's protection of him. It's just based on all that the Lord has given him. Job's a wealthy man. And Satan's argument is, if you knock this Job bloke around a little, he'll curse the Lord to the Lord's face. And surprisingly, the Lord allows Satan enough rope, so to speak, to prove himself wrong. And the first wave of suffering is inflicted. All of the wealth is gone. The servants are put to the sword. His kids are killed in a terrible storm where the roof of the house collapses on them all. But instead of cursing God, Job praises and worships the Lord. And we read those words that have become famous at the end of chapter 1 where he says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And our narrator says, In all this Job did not sin in charging God with wrongdoing. But God allows Satan to have another go. And the sores from head to toe are inflicted. And we picture this bloke, Job, sitting on an ash heap, scraping these, these painful sores. And even while Job's own wife takes up that temptation of Satan, why hang on to your integrity? Just curse God and die. Even then, Job says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And we read in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And so we have this book, 42 chapters long, and the, the big theme of it is that God's people worship God, not for what we can get, but because he is God and he is worthy of worship. If it was your friend in this situation... And you don't have the backstory like we do as readers. If it was your friend, do you know what you would do, what you would say? At the end of chapter 2, we're introduced to those three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and, and Zophor, and they might appear as wise at first. They don't say anything. But they sit on the ground with Job seven days and, and seven nights. They don't say anything because they can see the significance, how great his suffering was. And we might take that as good advice, trying to care for a friend. We can feel we need to say something, don't we? But we can end up spouting rubbish. At least saying things that are a little insensitive. Uh, sorry if I've done that for you. There can be some wisdom in this silence initially. But as one commentator says, it could be these guys sitting with Job in silence. It might be that they're, they're just treating him as though he's already dead. Their actions at the end of chapter 2 sound very similar to a funeral service. Anyway, the words eventually get going. Job speaks, chapter 3. He doesn't curse God, but he, he curses the, 
the day of his birth, such as the enormity of his suffering. In chapter 4 and 5, the, the first friend speaks, Eliphaz. In 6 and 7, Job speaks. And when we get to chapter 8, Bildad pipes up. But already Bildad is, well, he's angry. <laughs> he's all wound up. And he says in verse 2 of, of chapter 8, How long will you say such things, Job? Your words are a blustering wind. It's an interesting thing to say to someone who is really struggling in life, isn't it? As they sort of try and work through what, what's going on for them in the, the pain. Back in chapter 6, Job accused his friends of treating his words as hot air, so to speak. And here, Bildad just confirms it. Yep, that's what we think, mate. You're talking rubbish. Um, often enough in our house uh, down in Wally Street or Whaley Street, depending on uh, who you are. Some people can't cope with living in Wally Street. Anyway, often enough in our house, uh, we hear the complaint, it's not fair. And it might be an anecdote from the classroom at school. The teacher gets all of the boys in trouble but only a couple of them were playing up. It's not fair. I didn't do anything wrong. Or, or we give one of the kids something and another doesn't get it. It's not fair. They got this. I didn't get that. It's not fair. It, we have such an inbuilt system of justice, don't we? Uh, it's not fair. We, we feel that. You might cry that out to God sometimes. And the God of the Bible, we know that he's just. He reveals himself to be that way. And sovereign, in control, he shows himself to be those things. But if that is all that there is to say, we end up with the worldview of Job's friends, the three, and especially here, Bildad. You see this in verse 3, the rhetorical question, does God pervert justice, he asks? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? The implied answer, of course, is no. God is just. Therefore, Bildad sums things up in verse 4. Job's kids who died, according to Bildad, the house collapsing down on them, it was that they had sinned. And this was the punishment. A case of bad things happened to bad people. And so if something really bad happens to someone, it's proof that, a, well, that they're a dodgy character. Not only is Bildad insensitive, your kids are dead because they were bad, he also leaves off this idea of sins covered by sacrifice. You might remember back in chapter 1, early in the morning, Job would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of his children, just thinking, perhaps my kids have sinned and, and cursed God in their hearts. Job has some kind of sacrifice in view that sin might be atoned for, that sin might be dealt with. But there is absolutely no place for this in Bildad's thinking. For him, it is just as simple. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Uh, 
like karma, what goes around comes around, or any religious system where our righteousness is, is based on our own performance. And you see his reasoning in verses 5 to 7 with respect to Job. Job's not dead. Why? Well, his sin mustn't have been as bad as the sin of his kids. And so Job, according to Bildad, should should plead with the Almighty for mercy. Verse 6, Job should not seek forgiveness, but prove that he is upright and, and pure, amend his ways and be upright and pure. Then, says Bildab, uh, God may restore you to the prosperous state. As readers, though, we know the writer has made it very clear, Job is an innocent sufferer. And Bildad, he continues to argue his case in in verses 8 to 10. He he points to the evidence of tradition. What what do we know anyway? Ask a former generation. Find out what their ancestors learned. We were born yesterday. We know nothing. And it is good, isn't it, to to look back into history, to look at the historical evidence. We we learn so much uh, from history, if, if only we look at it. And we might have a sense of God's justice by doing that. But what of his grace? Well, we need him to speak. And before concluding, uh, Bildab illustrates with nature two plants, verse 11 to 19, that the reeds which the papyrus uh, was taken from, common in Egypt, you know, that, that they would write on the papyrus. They thrive, verse 11, but take away the water. They just die quickly. It's like that with those who forget God, says Bildad, verse 13. Much like Job's children, he would say, flourishing, all that wealth, but then gone. And it sounds a bit like Psalm 1, too. The wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. They'll not stand in the judgment. And this seems like really good wisdom. And it's right in the right context. But Job is innocent in this suffering. He fears the Lord. He shuns evil. A a true believer with, with integrity, the same on the inside as he is on the outside. Now verse 14, what they trust is fragile, says Bildad. What they rely on is in a spider's web. The, the, the spider's web doesn't, uh, doesn't carry a whole lot of weight, does it? And we picture someone trusting in something that's just going to collapse beneath them. Trusting in their family. That's their gospel. Trusting in their career. Trusting in their possessions or their, their health. But, but just like those... Just like a spider's web will collapse, so will they. In verse 16 to 19, the image is a thriving plant, but torn from its spot, and so it withers away. There's some wisdom here in what Bildad's saying, but but in the right context. His conclusion is telling, though. He says, surely... God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands 
of evildoers. For Bildad, is it as simple as life is going well? God must be pleased with me. Life is going terribly. I must have done something wrong. That's what Bildad would say, isn't it? But it leaves no space for undeserved suffering. It leaves no space for gift, undeserved favour. No place for grace. No space for the good news of Jesus. I love what H.H. Rowley writes. Let me just read this to you. Uh, By insisting that there is such a thing as innocent suffering, the author of Job is bringing a message of first importance to the sufferer. The hardest part of his suffering need not be the feeling that he is deserted by God or the fear that all people may regard him as cast out from God's presence. If his suffering may be innocent, it may not spell isolation from God. And when, the most, when he most needs the sustaining presence of God, he may still have it. It's helpful, isn't it? Because as we live in this world that's cause and effect, input and output, we can think, my suffering is directly due to something that I've done wrong. And Job says, no. No. And if innocent suffering can be a thing, we see it most significantly in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? Who knew no sin, yet became sin for us. For if innocent suffering is possible, so is undeserved favour possible, which we call grace. Jesus suffering the death we deserve and us receiving his righteousness, sins atoned for. Now, we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's just over here where we remember the only perfect person, Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, who suffered innocently in our place, who took the penalty we deserve if only we trust in him. How about we just pray as we do that in a moment? Please bow your heads with me. Our great God, we want to thank you for the book of Job. And we want to thank you that uh, it shows us that this life is not just cause and effect. It's not karma, what goes around comes around. But in this messy and, and broken world, the innocent can suffer. But Lord, also, given that reality, those who are not innocent can prosper. 
And Lord, we see that at times as the wicked prosper. And it seems unfair as we struggle with the reality of suffering. Heavenly Father, in this messy and murky world, we thank you that even in our suffering, as we cry out to you, we can know that you have not left us, that you have not turned aside from us. And we thank you, Lord, for Jesus, the innocent sufferer who really did die in our place. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we seek to care for each other in our trouble, we pray that you would help us not spout rubbish to each other and be unhelpful. But we pray that you would help us listen carefully to each other and remind each other of the gospel. Heavenly Father, we pray now for those battling We pray that you would draw near to them in their pain and that even in the difficulty they would know your love and care. Lord, as we look to the cross, we recognise that we are not innocent and so we pray that in Jesus you would forgive us and we pray too that we would rejoice in his sufficient sacrifice that our sin is dealt with and that we might enjoy you today and forevermore. We pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.